I've just been informed by the second reader that uh, the epistle to the Colossians was not read, and you heard Jeremiah two times. Yes. That's right. But it was the same thing. It was the same thing, virtually, as Colossians. But I need to say that because Colossians is, uh, certainly figures somewhat large in the sermon that I'm going to preach. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, not the first time this has happened. I'm used to being hurt. Everything is okay. <laughs> this is the last Sunday after Pentecost, and in our tradition, in the Lutheran tradition in many places, uh, and in the Roman Catholic Church, where it came from, uh, we call this Sunday the Feast of Christ the King. I suppose uh, relentless low church people uh, refer to this as the last Sunday after Pentecost, and that's perfectly fine. But it's important because I view this Sunday as a recapitulation in some ways of the whole of the green season because it covers broad themes, particularly uh, since its focus is on the kingdom of Christ. This feast or this commemoration uh, is not ancient. It uh, began in 1925 when Pope Pius XII promulgated the Feast of Christ the King. It wasn't always on the last Sunday after Pentecost. It, this was uh, had become, now is the custom uh, with the Second Vatican Council and the change in the, in the calendar because in some ways it's, it's more appropriate. So in 1925, who was in power in Italy? Mussolini. Mussolini. And so there is some interest in saying that, uh, I think as Pius XI said himself, that uh, we believe the authority of Christ shall lead humankind to seek the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. And so the Green Sundays are all about Christian discipleship, the ways, the means, the difficulties, uh, the cost of Christian discipleship. And so uh, there's sort of a summing up uh, in, 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 uh, on the Feast of Christ the King and in the reading from Colossians and in the Gospel to sort of uh, an odd juxtaposition uh, we have some, some uh, comments about what it means when we speak of the kingship of Christ. Here are the difficulties. We're Americans and for most of us kingship and kings do not uh, uh, impress. Right? So in the language of, of uh, the church, when we speak of the kingship of Christ, it's probably harder to appropriate for most of us. Another way to describe this feast, and it's begun to be so in, in many places, is the reign of Christ and how do we understand this. And the most important thing is to understand it in terms of our, the necessity of our involvement in this, the reciprocal nature of what it is uh, that is being talked about with the reign of Christ. God needs us to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. And in some ways, that is what is being discussed today. So um, I'll fast forward to Colossians and say some things about what Colossians is driving at today. Uh, biblical scholars will read this and say embedded in this text, in this reading from Colossians is an early liturgical hymn 
a baptismal hymn. Now, one of the things that looms large during the Green Sundays about discipleship is the baptismal covenant. And so periodically through the year, we renew our baptismal promises. And when the bishop was here last Sunday and there was confirmation and reception, we did it yet again in the context of the liturgy for confirmation and reception. We renewed our baptismal promises. Uh, up until this present prayer book, uh, the, the Episcopal Church and most of the churches in the Anglican Communion did not have a baptismal covenant. And in fact, there are many conservative Episcopalians who believe there's no reason why we should have a baptismal covenant and that it is a further testimony of our heretical direction. Right? So if you read the 1662 book, it's all about what God does for us, which is true, but there's not much of the sort of response. So in the baptismal covenant, it's something that we promise to do and it constitutes a, a species of template that we lay over our own spiritual development, our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, how they mature over time and become more congruent with God's purposes. On All Saints, I talked about the orthodox view of spiritual maturity is un understood as deification or theosis in Greek, which means that as we move closer to the spirit and touch that that has been given to us through our baptism and are operating more in congruence with that, we become less unlike God. So the goal of the spiritual life has something to do uh, with learning how to do that. And Paul today is speaking about this, that Jesus embodies all of the wisdom of God in its fullness. And this reading from Colossians uh, is a lot like, since the seasons is summing up, uh, in, in about four, yes? I wonder if you could read that reading to us, because we didn't hear it. Oh. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Colossians. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. 
the word of the Lord. Thank you. I didn't say at the beginning of the sermon, it gave me a chance to think about uh, what I left out. When I speak and, and Christian people speak of the kingship of Christ or the reign of Christ, there are some Christians who handle that concept in a way that is almost combative. It is a, a uh, aggressive approach to the Christian message that is often uh, used in a way that is, uh, doesn't build up but tears down. And uh, when I get to the gospel, I'll speak about that more, about my current private interests uh, in that area. But what I was going to say before we read that is, is that I think if you heard it, you can see that it is not unlike what is being described there to the Johannine prologue. And why that's important is, in terms of being a liturgical church and the change of the seasons, we are now going to move next Sunday to Advent which is the four-week season where we prepare for Christmas. The first post in the liturgical year, when it, as it developed over time, was the Easter celebrations. And then the pre-Easter uh, celebration or season that we now call Lent. And then subsequent to that, Pentecost. And then the second post in the, in the liturgical tradition of Western Christianity is... Christmas and the Christmas cycle. So Christmas comes later. Remember when uh, Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven? The disciples and apostles did not immediately go down to St. Luke's downtown Jerusalem and begin services from the Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> right? There was a period of time where the liturgical seasons developed and went through a process of evolution. And so in their present form, they date probably from some time in the 4th century, the 300s, where we begin to have material evidence and so on, manuscripts and all those things which would indicate to us that that's the case. But on Christmas and on the first Sunday after Christmas, we read the gospel from John, the introduction, which is known as the Johannine prologue. In the beginning was the word, and the word was... And so, uh, in the Greek, the word for the word is logos, in Greek. So you can understand logos as word. You can, uh, you can define it as, translate it as plan, you can translate it, my favorite, as the organizing principle. So what Pat read to you in Colossians is very similar. Paul is describing the organizing principle where God dwells in his fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. And when he speaks about him being the image of God, he uses language in the original that is like a, a minter minting a coin where you place the stamp on the metal and hit it with a hammer and it impresses into the metal the image. So by extension, what is being driven at in John's gospel and here is we're all like that. We're all made in God's image. 
And so that idea of the kingdom of Christ and our participation in it has something to do with us being made in God's image and extending the work as we move forward. Living lives congruent with God's plan for each of us and the knowledge that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And that by virtue of that, we're called in some way to respond in big and small ways. So it's a reminder of, of that necessity and that vocation for Christian people. Now, in Luke's gospel, I'm going to talk a little bit about the gospel because uh, before I do, though, something that's my new jag. So I've talked a little bit about it, and I thought it would be a good teaching moment uh, to do that. This is kind of a downer after Colossians. It's Jesus on the cross being crucified uh, and Luke's version of that between the two thieves and the conversation that takes place there and so forth. All of these narratives in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are slightly different one from another. They're not uh, absolutely identical. But in Luke, here's, here's what I've been doing. I have been watching some YouTube videos. Oh, no. Not <laughs> Uh, about a, gr a, a, a group in Christianity in the United States called King James Onlyism. I never even knew this existed. I knew that when we uh, revised the prayer book in 1979, there were a lot of Episcopalians who were furious that we were using a more modern translation of the Bible. And we weren't using the King James Bible, which is the authorized version in our tradition, the A.V., Okay, so this gang wants to use only the King James, and more to the point, they want to use only the 1611 version of the King James Bible, which is the first issuing of the King James translation. So if in the King James Bible this is the way it is, then that's the way it is. And some of them even go so far as to say that if you wish to make a translation of the Bible into Swedish, you don't use the Greek and the Hebrew. You use the King James, the English version, and translate that into Swedish. <laughs> right? So you have some of the, the real pro King James only people in this video. It's 41 little snippet videos, about three minutes long, where they talk about all of this. They use terminology like, the, Bible, King, the King James Bible was made for combat. <laughs> right? So we're talking about the kingdom of Christ, and we're talking about um, commending to people our greatest place of safety and assurance in Jesus. And what we're doing is saying we've got a document here that's used to hit you over the head with, with regard to how we're going to talk about the truth of the gospel. So when you drill down, uh, the, the respondents on the program were textual critics. People who uh, read Greek and Hebrew, you know, like English. No, pro They open it, like my professors, they'd open it up and read and translate simultaneously into English from the, the text. Mm. That's how, they, how well they knew those languages. So when you do that, you begin to find out some things. 
The New Testament in the King James Version is based on something called the Textus Receptus of 1555. Or 1525, excuse me. And the Textus Receptus came from somebody named Desiderus Erasmus. Have you ever heard of him? So he made this very fine Greek, trans- Greek text. And he had to do his work six manuscripts. So the King James only is to say, those are the definitive manuscripts in Greek. We now have hundreds of manuscripts, hundreds of manuscripts that date from the 4th century A.D. right up into maybe the 17th or 18th century. And they're discovering more and more. The first manuscript, the oldest Bible that we possess was discovered in 1859 by Count von Tischendorf at the monastery on Mount Sinai, St. Catherine's Monastery. The monks have now let scholars into an anteroom to the place where he discovered that Bible, to an old dark room where they have taken out now over 2,500 pounds of manuscripts within the last 25 years. So when you read from Luke, Jesus is on the cross. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So this is the New Revised Standard Version, and in that section there's a footnote that says, other ancient authorities lack the sentence. It's not in the text. All right? Some are, but in some very important... I'm going to show you this. is sort of showing off. You won't be able to see it. This is the Greek New Testament. And on this page is where that, that saying is recorded in Greek. And underneath, you see all this fine writing, which are the, which are the footnotes. So, for verse 34, they list the Greek saying, the Greek sentence, and then they show you all of the manuscripts where it doesn't appear. Now, frankly, they include it in the text, but they put it now in brackets. Because they're being honest about what that is. It may make this feel better, doesn't it? Forgive them, for they know not what they do, but they're not recorded by the scribes, by the people who, who, you know, copied the text, most of them. And so that means that at least that's something we need to know about how this works. And that we say, well, put it in, but it's not in a lot of other places. You know, in John's Gospel, the story of the, the crippled man by the pool who couldn't get in there when it got troubled. It says, an angel of the Lord came and trebled the waters. And he said, I can't go in there in time because I, nobody will help me get into the pool. And the first one into the pool gets healed. Well, we possess manuscripts that have that as a marginal note. 
So what does the scribe do to be safe so he won't get balled out? The next time he copies it, he puts it in the text. So the earlier manuscripts don't have that, but the later manuscripts do. So how do you figure this out? I don't know. You know, you just need to do something about it. But what this text is about is that Jesus is now demonstrated in this as the Savior. In his words and in his works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And by extension, we now understand his uh, kingly nature as something that is in favor of the values of love, justice, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And that this is the Jesus that people said, uh, we wish to reign in the world through us. The kingdom of God is not somewhere else. It's here. And so you and I are part of how that works. And the language originally about all this would resonate with the people who first heard it because that's how they understood the kingship in the world and who Jesus was. He represents both a priestly and a secular king in their minds. And he brings values to this that both King David and the other kings at their best in the halcyon days of Israel, how they reflected that back to the people that they served rather than some tyrannical fashion. And that a text like this is not for the purpose of saying, well, it's not really built for combat. That's how I would read it in a different, in a different way. So when he speaks to the thief... He tells him that this day you will be with me in paradise. And the way you and I can understand that is, is that we're not going to somewhere else permanently. We're resting in the peace of Christ. If you ask, if you ask the question, pastors get asked a lot. All I want to know, I've talked about, all I want to know is where is he now? Right? He's safe in God's space. When, someday, he will return at the great resurrection. That's become completely lost in our understanding of life and death and all of those things. Someday, they come again. In the great resurrection. We're all together. So when you think about the peace of Christ. Think about. Uh, being a. Uh, ambassador for Christ. As Paul says. Since God is making his appeal through us. And that's what it means to be. Sharing the inheritance of the saints in light. So we're getting prepared now. For next Sunday. Which is the beginning of the church year. This is the end of the church year. And so the beginning of the church year is when we prepare. So it's a season of anticipation, and it's a season of hope. Somebody said to me a long time ago, hope can be broken apart as honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. So when you think about being a hopeful person, it means somebody who can... Uh, Put those things to work. So this week, think how, about how you might do that.
Amen. Amen.